take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. So if 2020 was going like it was supposed to, right now we would be, uh, I think on the second day as we record this into the Olympic Games, just after the uh, opening ceremonies and enjoying some sports on TV. But as we all know, 2020 has not turned out to our hopes. So I'm bringing in the next best thing, the Director of Communications for the Canadian Olympic team, uh, Fody Sotaropoulos. Thank you, sir, so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time. Oh, it's a real pleasure to be here. So <laughs> I guess the first question, you know, I, I assume you would be in, uh, if it, like I was saying, if it was a normal 2020, you'd be in Japan right now. What are you doing now to fill your time? <laughs> That's a really great question. Uh, we're actually uh, celebrating our one year out uh, from the games at the moment we're recording this, uh, this podcast. Uh, one year out to Tokyo 2021. It's, uh, it's keeping its name to Tokyo 2020, however, even though we're uh, going to be uh, doing it next year. Uh, what we're doing to occupy your time? Well, we're working on a whole bunch of things. The biggest thing that's currently preoccupying us is getting two games ready back to back, right? Because uh, now that Tokyo is going to be in the summer of 2021, we have in the winter of 2022, just six months after Beijing happening. And uh, normally that would have been a year apart. So what we've done right now is we split up our team uh, of employees. We have about 100 people working at the COC in uh, Montreal and Toronto offices. Uh, and we've split them up into uh, two teams, one working on Beijing and the other one working on Tokyo because that, that lead up time between the two is no longer there. It's funny because a lot of people uh, kind of ask us that under normal circumstances as well, right? Being the Canadian Olympic Committee, a lot of a lot of my friends i'm not going to name any of them here not to embarrass them will ask me well what the hell do you do between those games right because you have winter and summer games and then you have like basically a two-year span mm -hmm. that, that you're basically doing nothing are you like are you just like waiting for are you on vacation what, what the hell do you do and we, uh, we basically work every year on a games because one thing that people don't appreciate perhaps is that we work on the summer and winter games, the Olympic games, but we also work on the Pan American games that happen in the Americas every, uh, every four years as well. Uh, we work on the youth Olympic games, uh, both summer and winter. And so literally every year is a games year. And then, we prepare for games at least five years in advance. So right now we're preparing for games for Paris 2024 and we're starting conversations with uh, Italy for 2026. And there's also wow. the 2028 games happening in Los Angeles. So we're thinking very long-term and, and these things, these decisions are, are very long-term. So that's why this is a very long rambling answer. Uh, this is why I'm, I'm wrapping up here. Uh, this is why um, the idea of the games having been postponed is so incredibly unusual. You know, avoid saying the word unprecedented. It's been said way too many times during this pandemic, but it is so freaking unusual that we are in, in this predicament. You would have asked me in February or um, March, uh, whether I thought this would ever happen. 
And I would be willing to bet my life savings that this would never happen, but it did. And so what is normal is yeah. a question for debate. Anymore. Yeah. yeah, seriously. It's, it's kind of flipped everything on its head. And then it's, we've, we've gone into 2020 even more, all the, the different, you know, social actions and, and, you know, American politics and Canadian, like everything just seems to snowball and you know, it all just started with that yeah. kind of that one night with the NBA. Um, I am curious. Uh, Canada was one of the first countries to kind of come out and say, you know, whether you choose to go ahead with the Olympics, Tokyo, um, we're, we're not going to take part. The, the health and safety of our athletes is going to be paramount. I'm curious yeah. to know, you know, that that's a huge decision. Like you said, like you would have bet your life savings on, on going back in February. And then we come out, you know, end of March, early April with, with this decision. What, what goes into a decision like that? How much conversation are you having? How many people are involved? That is the, uh, the very difficult question to answer because there are, uh, so many people involved in such a decision. And uh, you're absolutely right. Canada was the first country to come out and say, we're not going to the games this summer. If the games are going to happen this summer, uh, we're going to bow out and uh, we're going to find another solution to this, but we're not going there in 2020 uh, of July. Uh, and um, and so what happened? I'll, I'll, I'll try and give you the Coles notes just so that it's not one of those rambling answers um, because there's there's just so many things that happen and so many steps that that uh, came along, uh, and I'll I'll summarize it in in just saying the 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 decision almost practically happened in the span of 24 hours, and I would say those were the longest 24 hours probably of my entire life, uh, with a tremendous amount of phone calls and meetings uh, that occurred uh, to get to that point. And um, it, it started early in the day. It was Sunday. Uh, we had a call with our athletes commission and our president was on that call. Uh, and I believe our CEO was also on that call. I was on that call as well. And we were really talking with our athletes commission and that's a body of athletes that represent all of our Olympians. So they're, they're, uh, they're, they're there to voice the concerns, the ideas, the thoughts of our Olympians, uh, and they're a, a good representation uh, of, of who, uh, who our athletes are. It's, being, it's chaired by uh, Shay Smith, uh, who's a fantastic Olympian, wonderful uh, all-around human being, quite frankly, and co-chaired by Rosie McLennan, who is uh, an Olympic uh, uh, darling, I would say, uh, a, uh, a national treasure, I would also dare say, and just a fantastic human being in, in her own right as well. And so we're on the call with them and we're having this conversation about what, what we should be doing. And we're, we're having a conversation as well. On the call is our chief medical officer, Dr. Mike Wilkinson, he's sort of uh, explaining, this is early days, we're, we're maybe week two, week three of our lockdown, and, uh, and we know that this is becoming a very serious thing. We know that this is, dare I say it again, unprecedented. Uh, and, um, and we're trying to make, basically explain to the athletes from a medical point of view and from a health and safety point of view what needs to be done. While that meeting is happening, we get an email uh, press release uh, by the International Olympic Committee saying that, 
you know, we're going to, they're going to need another four weeks to decide what happens to the, the games. And the one thing that they had ruled out for a hundred percent sure was they were not going to cancel them, but they knew that they were either going to postpone them or they were going to hold them during the summer. Uh, and what, what that would look like, they weren't a hundred percent sure yet. And so the conversation then changed and the question changed. And that was a fundamental thing that happened in that, that moment in time. And the question was no longer whether we should be heading to games, but what do we do during this four week period? Do we tell our athletes through our athlete commission that they need to continue training during this period of time, because we're not sure whether we're going or not, or do we tell them stop training and listen to what the directions and the directives of our government and our chief medical officer, Dr. Tam, and our own chief medical officer, Dr. Mike Wilkinson, what they're telling us, which is stay home because you're endangering not only your lives, but you're endangering the lives of your family and friends and your communities and the people that are around you, not to mention the coaches that need to come and, and help them train and all that sort of stuff. And so when we changed the question as to do we need to continue training or not? It became an obvious answer. The answer is no, we don't want you to continue training because we don't want you to endanger your life or the lives of your uh, family and friends. And so it became really a question of health and safety. And so when we asked that question to the athletes, the answer became apparent. No, we're not going to continue training. Therefore, we're not going to be able to make it to the Olympic Games because we're not going to be ready for the Olympic Games. You can't ask an elite athlete to all of a sudden stop training for a four-week period or a, a, an in, indeterminate amount of time, indeterminate amount of time uh, in order to, to get to, to where they get to. And, and the Olympics is quite frankly you know, the, the cream of the crop of, uh, of athletes around the world. So, um, so that decision became quite apparent. Then we had to socialize it and explain it to our national sports organizations. We had a whole bunch of calls with them. There's over a hundred people on that call. Um, you know, all the, the governing bodies across Canada of sport. And then we also had uh, conversations with sport Canada and our government, uh, and uh, our board of directors. And this was all done obviously in conjunction with our Canadian Paralympic Committee uh, counterparts uh, who's, uh, also, uh, who also had, uh, were influenced as well and, and were part of those conversations in, in coming up with that decision. And late that night on that Sunday, so this is all happening on one uh, day on a, during a 24 period uh, hour, um, we sent out a press release that we wrote and said, for these reasons, we will not be participating in the games. Australia came out afterwards, uh, several hours after our decision was made. And then the International Olympic Committee, I think within a 48-hour period, then decided that the four weeks that they had initially asked to make a, a decision were no longer needed. And their decision was that the games were going to be postponed. I originally said these were going to be the Coles notes of what happened. It was probably a little bit longer, but you, 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 you understand the complexity of all of this yeah. and how, how insane the decision-making process was in terms of time. Uh, it, it, was a, it was probably the toughest, toughest thing we've uh, all been part of. Yeah, that, uh, I remember kind of that, that two or three weeks before that decision was made and um, when we went into lockdown, um, here in Ottawa, we had the, the wrestling um, kind of qualifying. And I remember um, a lot of athletes were speaking out about that um, because, you know, they're, they're training and they go to this event that had no fans and, and then, you know, talking about that, that training aspect. Uh, and I love that 
that entire answer that was all within 24 hours. That's kind of what I love about finding out about people's jobs, especially at a high level like you're at, because I think most people would, would think that, you know, you guys just kind of had like a quick meeting and you're like, okay, yeah, we're not going. And then, you know, move on with your lives, put out the press release. And then it's like actually, and, and you just summed it up in, in just a couple of words when really it was totally wild of the amount of communication you had to go to. I am curious, was there blowback or any controversy with that decision when, when you released it? Um, in the international community where people are like, well, Canada, what are you doing? Come on. Um, I would, I was, I'd, I'd say that it was um, received generally quite well um, by most countries. Uh, you know, obviously you have to put yourself in the shoes of the international Olympic committee and uh, being told by one of your one of your 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 countries that they're not going to be going to games is probably not what you want to be hearing uh i i would assume uh and uh, i'm sure that uh it, it was perhaps uh perceived a little bit uh differently in in those circles mm-hmm. ultimately though uh and and i do have to also add the fact that a lot of our athletes even though they were on board with the decision, were mostly uh, mixed emotions. Uh, you know, when you're you're you know that in five or six months from now you're going to be competing in the biggest sporting event of your life, and you're going to be doing it on the world stage, and you've been training for the past three, four years to get to that point, and all of a sudden you're gonna you're you're getting a you're you're getting an email press release from the Canadian Olympic Committee saying. Uh, well, we're putting it on hold for another year. It's probably not the thing that you want to be reading, right? So uh, some of our athletes were devastated by the decision, even though they understood that that decision was the right decision to make. And you also have to think of the fact that a lot of these athletes have put their entire lives on hold in order to be able to get to this point. Uh, A lot of them have uh, suspended their uh, education or, you know, suspended uh, going to, to, to work, uh, full time uh, in order to be able to train, and so that's that's a huge life commitment. And so being told that there's another year that you're going to have to do that is also a difficult thing to hear. Uh, otherwise, there are other athletes that uh, might have deemed themselves too old to compete in 2021. So there's a lot of tremendously mixed emotions around the athlete community, even though we understood and, and, and thought that this was the right thing to do, even though there was a tremendous amount of consensus throughout all the stakeholders, all the people that we communicated with thought, yes, this is the right thing to do. So I, I do want to make sure that I qualify the answer that yes, uh, we all agreed on it, but it wasn't something that we were all necessarily a hundred percent happy with. And, um, and still to this day, it's, created a tremendous amount of uh, anxiety in some people and some people have been viewing it as an, an incredible positive. Uh, Penny Alessiak uh, in a conversation uh, that I, I listened to her um, speak uh, said that um, this was a great opportunity because it would provide her with an extra year to prepare for the game. So for her this was a, a great, great uh, um, great thing that happened one great thing that happened it was a good thing that happened and, and she chose to see it as a positive rather than a negative uh, but you can't discount other people's um feelings around all of this as well so um 
internationally, uh, within the first two hours, I think of publishing that press release, I've never, I've never seen this in my career. I think I had over 200 media requests from around the world, everywhere, everywhere from Germany to Australia to uh, New Zealand, uh, England. I, I think I, I must have spoken to, I can't, I can't even count the number of journalists that I spoke to that evening uh, in, well into the early hours because we sent out the press release, I think it was around 8, 9 p.m., uh, and obviously that uh, with the time zones uh, change uh, and difference within different countries, uh, people were waking up to the news or people were in mid midday and were getting this news. So it, it was another 24, 48 hours of just doing interviews with every possible media outlet and most of them being incredibly complimentary to Canada, uh, seeing mm. Canada as a leader in the world around uh, this particular issue and uh, and praising us so uh, overwhelmingly positive, right? Uh, you know, talking about all these things and, and getting into more, you know, instead of more of what your actual work is, other than just you know putting out the fire of COVID nineteen. What you know, saying director of communications and, and media relations, you know, that's a, a a nice title for a lot of different things that you probably do, other than you know giving up press releases and stuff. What, what goes into a role like that? And like all the kind of encompassing things that, that goes into your job. Well, that's a really good question. Um, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, it is so involved and has so many different aspects to it that um, it's kind of difficult to sort of summarize in, a, in just a few words. I'll, I usually put it in buckets because it's easier for people to sort of see the different uh, different areas in which um, I operate. Uh, first of all, I, I had a, a team of uh, five amazing communications people uh, in in the COC at the COC who operate at incredibly high levels and standards. I am in awe of them on a daily basis for what they can achieve and produce. And um, we have somebody who is responsible on our team for the marketing aspect of uh, our, our Team Canada brand. And, and so that person liaises with, um, with brand and partnerships uh, and digital to be able to get our message and brand out there to our fans. Uh, and so that's one of our main and very important stakeholders, our fans, and how we communicate to them. Then there's the other aspect of it, which is corporate communications, which sounds a little dreary to be completely honest with you when you say I work in corporate communications most people's eyes glaze over uh, but it's, it's actually quite interesting because it's you know developing true and important policy you could argue that our position to uh, not go to games this summer or to to not withhold a team from from going to games that was a corporate communications decision uh, as much as it was a health and safety decision and, and, uh, and the way that we communicated that was, was through our corporate communications channels. And so that was an incredibly important aspect uh, of our work. It's our, our official position on where we stand on doping internationally. Mm -hmm. And we have some incredible people within the Canadian Olympic Committee that uh, have 
such an important storied uh, and and uh, and um, incredible career around uh, that particular aspect of things. Just think about the Richard McLarens uh, who came out with the uh, doping um, report around Russia that was the basis of or one of the bases of the Icarus documentary. On yeah, that, like fabulous doc. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and if you think about uh, Richard Pound, Dick Pound, who has been with the Olympic movement since the late 60s, one of the first uh, presidents of the Canadian Olympic Committee uh, and the first uh, president of the World Anti-Doping Association, uh, Becky Scott, uh, Olympian and also on the IOC Commission and sat on the WADA Commission and now on Global Athletes. There's, there's a lot of people within Canada that have these really important roles around around doping. So that's all corporate communications uh, and that's another really uh, important aspect of our work. Uh, then um, I would say we, we work around what we call uh, IR and uh, PA, so International Relations and Public Affairs, uh, and that's everything that has to do with government relations, everything that has to do with our international community. The International Olympic Committee and the Canadian Olympic Committee is an international organization, and so we deal with a tremendous amount of other countries with other uh, diplomatic uh, uh, entities. Um, when we go to different countries, uh, we're not an we're not a government represent, representative, right? We're not we're a and this is something that a lot of people not, are not aware of. A lot of people think that their tax money is going towards the uh, the Canadian Olympic Committee. We're almost entirely privately funded. Ninety eight percent of our funding mm -hmm. comes from the private sector, and so the the other the the dichotomy of that is that we're because we're not a government entity. We also represent Canada uh, by de facto. Our name is Team Canada, and we wear the Team Canada colors and have the maple leaf on our on our uh, on our uniforms and and, uh, and gear and kits. Uh, and that, in and of itself, is an incredibly important representation of who we are as a as a nation. So when we go to other countries, how we communicate with those uh, those other countries is is an important aspect of it. And and added to that, right now, is the whole idea of bidding and hosting and Canada may be getting the games again at some point in the near future. And so that also plays in within the public affairs and international relations side of things. Um, there's inter internal communications. There's all of the communications that happen with our own employees, with our own staff and how we communicate all of the internal policies and all of the uh, internal uh, things that uh, human resources come up with, with our CEO and senior leadership team come up with. Uh, and so that is another aspect of it. So we deal with a lot, uh, yeah. and the, the title sounds fancy, uh, and, and a lot of it is is quite quite, uh, to be honest with you, fun. Um, but uh, there are so many different little aspects and facets of this work that uh, that keep us busy on a daily basis. That uh, I don't, you know, this, uh, coming by, coming back to the original thing, like what do you do between games? Do a lot. <laughs> do yeah. a lot. And it's amazing that you still have a, a luscious full head of hair too, because it sounds it's, like a... Uh, it's white. It's white. You can see it here on the, the Zoom um, call, but it's getting whiter and whiter. I'm always curious. And, uh, you know, I do this in, in my professional life when I'm talking to, to senior leaders or, or thought leaders. You know, when you, when you get to kind of a position that you're at with, you know, a lot of people reporting to you, a lot of moving parts, like you, you just gave a description of all the people you kind of have to be in touch with. How do you find work-life balance? Like, how do you kind of make sure that you take care of yourself, that you're ready to go to work and, and deal with all this? Because 
as a, as a young person, as a millennial, um, you know, I think a lot of us struggle with that because we're, we, we always kind of want to be busy and, and look like we're busy and feel busy. So, you know, again, the question, like, how do you kind of balance everything to, to make sure you're performing at a high level? It's leading by example. Uh, you know, if you're going to tell your team that work-life balance is important, you better not be sending them emails after 5 p.m. unless somebody's dying. Right? Uh, you better be the first one to say, hey, listen, I have a vacation uh, vacation time that I haven't taken. I'm going to be taking it. And you know what? You, I'm encouraging you to do the same. It's not being a stickler for people who have different working styles and conditions. I told my team time and time again i i i don't care if you're uh sitting by by um you know on a lounge chair by the pool or you're in an office from nine to five or you want to work only between you know midnight and five in the morning because that's the most productive time for you you choose your own time as long as we get the work done as long as we're having fun working together uh i i really don't care i feel that that is micromanaging people i feel like it's it's like telling people how to work when people have so many different ways of working and it, it's so unimportant really it's it's not re really important what we we care about is is being um world leaders it's producing world-class events uh, it's comparing ourselves to the best of the best out there and setting the bar even higher and that's what I want my team to be concerned about I don't really want them to be concerned about whether they you know it's okay for them to take a half day off because they're not feeling well that day or because uh, you know I don't want them to feel that there are any repercussions if they they don't meet certain specific requirements and and don't show up on our daily morning meetings and and quite Frankly, I've had to adapt, and, and, and part of what I have to do as a leader is adapt to my team, even though some of the things that they want might not necessarily be congruent with what I want. And so, um, so one of the things that we've been looking at right now is, um, you know, we work incredibly hard, we work long hours, we work very stressful uh, files and, and 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 things. And so, one of the things that we're trying to do. Uh, more and more is is like how do we how do we socialize in all this? How do we keep in contact and how do we keep sane? Like you know, normal normally we would uh, you know have a team dinner or we would do an offsite or we would go on some sort of fun little thing to sort of distract ourselves. Uh, we we would go to a conference together somewhere uh, fun and exciting and interesting and and get to interact with other people and we don't have any of that anymore. Uh, so we're trying to find ways of doing that and, uh, and we're trying to really, um, be creative in how we do that. So, you know, don't take my word for it. Ask my team because, you know, you're, you're obviously getting one side of the story. My team might have a completely opposite <laughs> opinion of all of this, but I think, I think we're operating really well and I think it's bringing the right energy and, and that's a little bit tough because not everybody, you know, not every morning is a morning where I'm like, you know, a hundred percent and I, I I'm, a, I'm ready to go but you need to force yourself because you need to know that there's other people that are relying on you and uh, and so I, I hope that answers the question in some way but I think I think that's that's the key to it it's leading by example and 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 being bringing your best self and then also bringing your your um, criteria in terms of that
boundaries, right? I, 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 you know, if, if somebody on my team emails me, I'll respond, but I will, you know, after hours, but if I, if I don't think that it is something that is, uh, you know, we're, we're not, we're not saving lives. I keep reminding our team that, but it, you know, if there's nothing, nothing that is going to explode or somebody's going to die, you can take another, another 24 hours to get me, get back to me. Right? Right. That's funny. That's what we always see. Yeah. We're not curing cancer. You know, when, when something happens, you know, you make a mistake, it's at the end of the day, you know, we're, yeah, we're not doctors. We're, we're, we're having fun and we're in an important business, but you always got to put some things into perspective when it comes to what your work is. Um, so I took communications in university a bit before I, I dropped out for a full-time job. You know, a lot of people just get into communications because I don't know, I think it's kind of a very broad field and no one really, you get in and you don't really know where it's going to take you, but it's, it's a degree and, and, and people, so people start it. I'm curious to get to a spot like you're at, I, I'm, I'm curious on kind of like your journey. Uh, and where you've ended up in your career, because, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's not linear that you just started at the Olympic Committee and just you there were intern and then you were the, you know, the this, that, and then all of a sudden you were director. Take me through a little bit of your journey uh, of how you ended up here. Oh, uh, that's an, that's a good one. Uh, I've, you know, okay. Uh, much like, uh, much like I think you, uh, in, in your, um, and, and I, I'd like to get to know a little bit more about you actually, because your, your, your journey is quite interesting as well. Um, but, um, but I think like a lot of people in this field, I was very interested with radio and television production at a very early age. And I knew that this was something I wanted to do at some level. I knew my parents at the same time were very dis, uh, discouraged by that idea um, because it wasn't uh, it wasn't really what their plans were of me either becoming a doctor or a lawyer, uh, and so I had to convince them. I had to say like, no, this is actually what I want to do. I don't want to be a lawyer. I don't want to be a doctor. Uh, the sight of blood really gets me a little uh, weak in the knees, and 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 I don't think anybody uh, in the medical uh, profession wants. Uh, that uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, as uh, or, or that 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 trade in their doctor. So you know, if, if you're if you're um, if you're fainting every time you see blood, you, you're probably your patients are not probably going to be very confident in your abilities. So uh, so communications was what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do radio for some reason. I know that radio for me was something really magical. I listened to radio as a child, and I had my headphones, and late at night, and I would listen to it, and and would try and catch uh, on the shortwave uh, other radio stations from far away. And it was better at night because you can get those those signals uh, at night. This is pre internet. Right. Um, and so uh, and so I really enjoyed that. I loved listening to people's voices and how intimate it was and how they could sort of whisper. And it almost felt like they were talking to you directly. Uh, and the idea that radio didn't require a tremendous amount of technical um, equipment or, you know, things like you, you literally could do it by yourself in a booth, press a button and turn on your mic and talk to people and then have an immediate response. So you could give out a phone number and people could call in and then have an interaction with them. There was some immediacy with them. Mm -hmm. And so I started doing a whole bunch of uh, radio programming uh, by myself with others. Mm -hmm. uh, I did community radio a lot in uh, Montreal growing up uh, I think I kind of joked at the time that I did every uh, every community radio station you could possibly find in in, 
in the greater Montreal area and uh, in both uh, French and English. Uh, and um, and then uh, studied communications, much much like you. Uh, remember graduating uh, from my communications degree and thinking to myself, "What the hell am I now? Like, am I? I'm a communicologist, which is what exactly? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, how how does a communicologist get a job in this world? Uh, and so naturally I thought, okay, we're going to continue this studying thing because I'm not ready to go for, for a job at this, at this uh, moment in time, continue doing, uh, some, uh, I did a, I started working on a master's degree in education, which was a completely different oh. thing, but kind of related. Um, and, um, one thing led to another. I, so while I was doing all of this, I was volunteering to rate and radio stations. I, I got a couple of gigs doing uh, camera, uh, being a ca- camera operator for television. Um, and, uh, and I can get into another story with how I got a camera and all that sort of stuff, but that's, that's for another time perhaps. Uh, and um, one thing led to another. And at that time, uh, when I was doing uh, my master's degree, my husband uh, told me, uh, my, well, I think we, I don't think we, no, we weren't married at the time. Uh, no, we weren't. Uh, so he told me uh, that um, there was a job opening at the NHL. And uh, he was a huge hockey fan. I wasn't as much of a hockey fan as he was. So I sort of applied to it. And uh, a few a few weeks later, I got a phone call. And I remember being a little bit weird because it was, it was in the evening and I answered the phone and this uh, nice woman on the phone says, hi, I'm calling you from the National Hockey League. How are you today? And I said, oh, I really have no time for surveys right now. Uh, <laughs> it's dinner time. And she's like, no, this isn't a survey. You applied to a job with us. And I thought to myself, you know, I had to think about it for half a second because it was sort of like so not like me to apply to the NHL. Oh yeah, that's right. Yes, I did apply for a job with you guys. Uh, and she says, well, your resume is interesting and you have all these cross-functional areas in your CV and we'd be interested in meeting with you. And that whole thing was a fluke. Like I would have never applied to it had my husband not sort of directed me to it. And this sort of first job, I got a whole bunch of interviews and went through them. And I think part of it was the fact that I almost in the back of my head knew that they weren't going to get me for this job. I was like, there nobody, you know, but nobody ever hires you for the NHL. So as a Canadian kid, you kind of were like, whatever. Yeah. So uh, I kind of went to the, those interviews with kind of not nonchalant, but kind of like, if this happens, happens. If it doesn't happen, doesn't happen. And and I it happened. And I got the job. And that first job changed the course of my entire career. So I suddenly had a purpose. I knew that I wanted to work in sport because the NHL just really was this fantastic place. It was it was it was cool. It was really, really, really cool. Um I enjoyed every moment of it. I, I worked on the all-star game in, uh, in Montreal and uh, was the all-star location manager, uh, which meant that I did a whole bunch of stuff, including uh, organizing volunteers for the all-star game and creating, you know, helping with communications collateral and, and doing a whole bunch of other things there. 
And, uh, and that led me to a career in sport, which then led me to a, a, a job at uh, the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League, which is part of the Canadian Hockey League, which uh, encompasses the yep. WDO and the, the Q, uh, and worked there as, uh, in communications. And uh, that brought me here. That brought me to this, uh, this job. I'm, I'm skipping a whole bunch of steps because I've already realized that I've di- digressed several times in my conversation as to, ha- to, to that very simple question. But, you know, it's 90% of it was being at the right place at the right time. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and 10% of it, uh, I, might, might, might be, uh, I might be selling myself short, but I think 10% of it is, is talent. The, the rest was really being at the right place at the right time. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. Um, I interview a lot of radio kids uh, coming uh, coming into the when I'm getting a job at, at the street team. You know, the promo crew and a lot of the guys like sports is always the dream. Everyone kind of gets into radio, and they're like, no, I want to be on sports radio, or, or you know, even myself. Like I, you know, I've always fancied a career in, in sports communications. Um, my favorite hockey team is the Detroit Red Wings, and you know, I've, I've tried reaching out to the communications director there just for shits and giggles, but. Um, yeah, like you kind of landed in that, that dream field for, for a lot of young broadcasting professionals, especially men, that, that, that sports is kind of like the all-encompassing dream job and the, the pride to be like, I work for the NHL. Now I work for the COC. It's, <laughs> it's cool. It's, it's um, really cool in cocktail parties. Yeah, no kidding, eh? Um, I, I love that you brought up the fact uh, about your husband, because one of the things I did want to ask you about, and especially in today's climate, is diversity and inclusion and, you know, um, all that in, in sport, because that's a big topic. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know your perspective on, you know, why diversity and inclusion, whether it's about race or sexual orientation or, or gender, is really important in, in sport? Um, because you get a lot of people, especially on social media, which is a whole thing, and I reference it a lot on the podcast, but it's don't bring politics into sports. Don't, you know, keep sports sports. Mm-hmm. What, what's your perspective on why, why diversity and inclusion on, on pride and, and Black Lives Matter, why that's so important in sport? You know what? I think that is an excellent question and one that not enough people are asking themselves um, around this particular issue. Um, Sport has an ability to bring people together like very little else can, right? So what's interesting about sport is that if you are a uh, Senators fan, if you're in Ottawa or you're a Habs fan in Montreal or you're a Maple Leafs fan, God forbid, in Toronto, um, you are part of this uh, community. And the fans that go to those games and cheer for those teams, um, they cheer because they have a common, a common goal, a commonality amongst them. And what's fascinating is that rich and poor, educated and uneducated, um, black and white, all come together and congregate for the same reason. And there's not a lot of things in life that create that sense of community. And sport is a microcosm of the world, uh, of our society. If you think of moments in sport history, uh, a lot of them have to do with 
how one person within a team was able to change perceptions and was able to bring and, and move the needle forward a little bit. Uh, when you think of um, how people react even to this day and how people use, you know, if, if you are looking at the LGBTQ plus community, if you're thinking of how, you know, homophobic language is still used today on the field of play uh, or how the fact that, you know, the, you, um, in, in many cases, uh, and, and this, this still happens to this day, uh, there, there are racist remarks that are made on the field of play as well. And it's all part of, you know, quote unquote, you know, to, to psych out your opponent or to, 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 to try and, and get into their head and to try and get them to play a, a bad game. Those are those are things that 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 ex still exist and things that we need to eradicate because that's not what sport is about. Sport is about a set of rules and and playing by those rules for a common purpose. And it's the reason why all these people, all these fans, congregate and cheer for a team. Uh, and so that's why it's important. That, that that's why diversity and inclusion is important in sport because when you get a um, large facet of the population cheering for a team um they the the idea that the people that are on that team are representative of your society and you're really cheering for the representation of your society is is a very powerful thing for me and uh and i think that's why it's really important to push for those things. It's really important to have representation in terms of, um, of uh, BIPOC communities within, um, within sport, uh, BIPOC representation within uh, boards of directors that make decisions in sport. Uh, that's why it's important to have LGBTQ representation. That's why it's important to have gender equity and, uh, and, and representation uh, when you're making all these decisions, because the only right thing is that what you have on the field of play, if it is truly a microcosm, is representative of the society you live in. And if it's not, then there's something that we're doing wrong. And I think mm -hmm. that's that's where my thought process is. When So when I was, I must have been 12, 13, I, I got called up to the rec team. And uh, the whole team picked on, picked on me and, and called me gay. Um, now, you know, back then, it wasn't even that long ago, but, um, you know, that was a big thing for a young straight boy to be called gay. You know, you didn't want to be called that. Um, I'm from a small town, so there wasn't a lot of education or, or, or talking about that certain subject. But the way I got them to stop was by beating one of the kids up. Now, I don't advocate for that, but I'm curious you know now that we've progressed in society a lot but we still do not see you know um an out athlete in one of the the major league sports um you know and, and i i see reports all the time that you know the majority of sports players would support a, a, a player on that team though even though we, we referenced that they use you know that homophobic language i'm curious from your point of view how do we go about really changing that culture that you know it's not just what we say but what we we do like how do we how do we go about 
changing that and really promoting that that fact of LGBT specifically in in sport. That's um, that's going to be a tough one. I mean, it's through different organizations. I I, I would argue like um, you can play. Um, it's through different people. Um, you know, if you're thinking of hockey specifically, uh, Brog McGillis is uh, right. somebody I've, I've worked with uh, and know quite well who's done a tremendous amount of work in that space. It's pushing boundaries and challenging people. I still, part of me uh, still thinks that because of the nature of hockey, um, it's, it's going to be very difficult and most likely will probably be one of the f- last sports where you have an out gay professional player that's in the NHL and uh, is going to be, you know, and, and this is something that was interesting because I, I didn't actually remark on this. It was actually my husband who, who was, who, who was telling me this and, and who, that made com- complete sense to me when I started thinking about it, you know, uh, unlike other sports, you know, if you think of basketball or football, um, those sports are very much based on the individual, even though they're team sports, right? So like you have superstars on a team and uh, they all have very big personalities and, and that's, and, and each one has their own personality and their own following hockey is very much still a sport where there's no I in team and where if you are different in any way uh, you're either ostracized or you're told that you're not fitting the mold and you're not, you're, you're, you're drawing too much attention to yourself. And that's part of the hockey, I guess, culture, uh, if you will, it's, it's part of the way that we view uh, that particular sport, uh, mildly Canadian, I guess, in, in some respects where, uh, you know, it's all about the collective and not about the individual, which is, is a, a lovely idea in and of itself. But perhaps that is also its own fault, right? That's probably also why I feel that might be one of the few last sports that are going to be okay or will will be okay with it. somebody. You know, I, I think of, of, you know, I can't think of a big personality in sport um that in, in sorry in, in hockey specifically the the one that comes to mind is uh pk suban uh at the time with uh, the montreal canadians who really was like that bigger than life personality the media loved him he he knew how to speak uh to to a camera and to an audience and to his fans and it was very approachable and he really was not he, he was the the uh, the person that was not part of the team. He was the person that drew too much attention to himself. Um, now you can argue for a whole bunch of reasons as to why he was traded, but a lot of people still think to this day that the reason why he was traded was because he drew way too much attention to himself, which was not what the ethos of, uh, of being of a part of a hockey team is, is all about. So I, th- I think there's a little bit of work to be done around that and a little bit of work to be done around changing that perception and you know what? What will happen is that the sky will not have fallen once we know that there's a gay hockey player that's playing in the NHL. There's bound to be one right now. Uh, and they're probably living a really horrible life because they can't be their true authentic selves. Self. And, um, and, uh, and when that person does come out officially, 
um, the sky will not have fallen, the world will not have stopped turning, and nobody's life will have been ruined as a result of it. And perhaps, you know, that's going to take one brave soul to do that and, and change and be a pioneer. It's funny to think about this. It's funny to think that in 2020, we're still waiting for a pioneer in hockey. Uh, and so we'll, uh, we'll hopefully cross our fingers and hope that it, it happens within our lifetime. The one thing I'm very encouraged about is that within my own lifetime, I've seen so much change uh, within this. I, I grow, grew up uh, knowing that I was never going to get married. Right. Having that thought in my head as a child and thinking well, one day I'll have to talk to my parents about the fact that I won't be able to get married and it's going to devastate them. It's going to break their hearts and it's going to, you know, all these ideas and plans that they had for me are, are, are not going to materialize. And within my own lifetime, we went from police officers raiding gay bars and imprisoning uh, gay people as pedophiles to gay marriage or marriage, I should just say, uh, being uh, deemed uh, legal for gay couples. Um, and, and that's in and of itself tremendously encouraging, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I see the last, I would say even the last five years now, I'm, I'm really big in mental health and, you know, I do personal speaking and, and advocacy and, and everything. The, the, the past five years, not only in all the negatives that we kind of talk about, whether we're, you know, the divisiveness of politics and all that, but everything's kind of really accelerated at a rapid pace, whether it's, you know, LGBTQ issues, um, mental health, there's, there just seemed to be a rapid progression in society. And I think social media is a big part of that. You know, everyone who didn't have a voice now um, has a voice, um, which I think is huge. And I always, I always reference that, that, we seem to think that these conversations are just coming out of the blue when really they've been happening forever. We just hear about them now thanks to social media and, and YouTube and videos and podcasts and, and everything. Right. So it's good. And like, I, I, I know it's 2020 and we're still waiting, but I too, I am, I'm really encouraged by the, the fact that everything seems to be progressing at a rapid rate. So it's, it is good news. Transitioning on the spot of hockey. The CBA just came out with, you know, the Olympics, um, the Team Canada and the NHL players, they, they're going to be allowed to participate in the Olympics, assuming that they go ahead and meet, get COVID under control. Does that really change things for, for the COC and, and, you know, your role, especially coming up um, in, in the winter games? Like, does that drastically change how you, you do things and proceed with the games? You mean the fact that uh, NHL players yeah, are, exactly. are going to be able to participate? Well, you know what? Um, there was so much talk around Pyeongchang specifically because we didn't have NHL players in Pyeongchang. And uh, the, the questions were about, will Canadians be interested in uh, hockey if NHL players aren't part of it? And you know what? Uh, my answer to that was, well, Canadians aren't really interested on a yearly basis uh, uh, with Luge, uh, and yet they watch it during the games. Uh, Canadians don't necessarily watch speed skating uh, year-round, but they watch it during the games. Um, to me, what happens is that once an athlete dons a maple leaf on their chest or on their, 
on their shoulder uh, and wears that maple leaf to represent their country, it really doesn't matter as much whether they are an NHL player or they're not an NHL player. They, what matters is that we're, we're cheering for them. Uh, the best example of it was uh, during uh, the final women's game at Sochi where the entire country stopped what they were doing. The entire country just stopped. Like you could hear a pin drop in Canada uh, when, when that, uh, the women's team was competing uh, during that final and won gold. And it was a moment that brought us all together. And yet none of them were NHL players. Mm. And so to me, it's the, how compelling the team is that's on the ice rather than uh, if they are a, you know, uh, part of the, part of the, uh, part, part of a franchise and, and uh, one of those big stars, obviously the star power and the storytelling and all that sort of stuff, you know, it feeds television stations it feeds, uh, it feeds a whole bunch of other things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously there's, there's an interest there from a commercial point of view, but I'm just, you know, distilling it to its essence. Um, I, I was, I, I was there and, and, and was trying not to, to, you know, not to tear up too much when I was watching the uh, the game, the final game uh, with men's in uh, Pyeongchang at Canada Olympic House, where we ended up not winning. Uh, the Americans won, uh, but um, but a truly proudly Canadian moment where after the win, uh, the Canadians that were all in Canada Olympic House, and there were some Americans as well who were very inclusive, <laughs> uh, they applauded. Uh, at the end and even though we were all devastated that we lost uh, the applause were in recognition of a game well played and I couldn't have been prouder to be a Canadian at that moment in time because it was uh, it was truly a beautiful moment it was a moment of showing sportsmanship and what being uh, being a true Canadian is yeah I'm glad you referenced that 2014 game with the women's because to this day that is one of my favorite hockey games if not the greatest it it really comes down to 2010 with the men's team and and that game but my heart skipped a beat even you talking about it I got goosebumps because I was just thinking back to the the post and and Marie Marie like yeah that was just a wild game and you're totally right that wasn't NHL that wasn't you know that was just uh, Olympic athletes giving them all or giving it all and and you know, I think back to uh, Alexander Bordeaux or John Montgomery or, you know, referenced, you know, Rosie McLennan, like these Penny Alexiak, all these, they're not household names until the Olympics and then they become superstars. And it's just because we all love sport and we all love cheering on our country. They're amazing. Like watching these Olympians are, are just, you're, you're in complete awe. Like, uh, I was I was at the figure skating um, uh, competition with um, with Scott and Tessa, and watching them on the ice, I I was just praying. I was in de- I was decked out in Canada gear, and I was just praying that you know the, as the cameras swooped to sort of uh, showcase the Canadians that are cheering for the Canadian. I was just praying that the camera wasn't going to land on me because I was just in the entire time I was like I was sobbing I was trying like thinking like okay this is not normal I should not be having this insane reaction to a figure skating but I was because a was so beautiful and b they're just 
what what Canada is all about. Uh, both of them are just amazing human beings, lovely people, uh, having interacted with them on many occasions and worked with them uh, when we named them as flag bearers, opening flag bearers for, uh, for the Pyeongchang games are just so awesome. And, uh, and, and I have so many wonderful, beautiful memories of both of them. So I, I, you know, you cheer for the people, but you also cheer for the country. And, uh, and that's, what's truly amazing and special about the Olympics. Absolutely. Now um, I, I could talk to you for hours, I swear, but I know you got work to do and I got to get back to work too. Um, but I, I would be remiss for the fact because I find communication so fascinating and I love, I love learning about crisis management. And this is something yeah. I'm learning in my own career with putting out statements and, you know, I, I, the, my question is, and it's going to refer to, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and George Floyd, you know, there was a lot of pressure on brands um, from across all the scopes of society to put out a statement. And I'm really curious from your point of view, what goes into putting out a statement? Because sometimes there's a lot of controversy that, you know, oh, the, the statement didn't really say anything, you know, it was just, oh, a lawyer did it. You know, you see that on social media a lot. You know, how do you go about putting a statement out where you want to be true and authentic, but you also, you know, as a PR professional have to be diplomatic and uh, I guess proper. I don't know if that's the right word. Uh, it is <laughs> all about pushing and pulling, I think, uh, in many instances. Um, without getting into too much detail about that particular statement, um, it, it, that situation was a tough one. Uh, a tough one because you're dealing with a lot of people's biases and a lot of people who have different opinions and, and you need to find some middle ground. So you ultimately as a communications professional, you know what, you know where you need to land. Uh, and, and the whole process is trying to get everybody to land in the same place. And sometimes you don't. And what you have to kind of think about is that when you're representing an organization as large as the Canadian Olympic Committee that is many thousands of athletes strong and hundreds of employees and it's hard to get to a space where everybody is in agreement of you know what what they ought to say um, a lot of it has to do with strong leadership and and thankfully we have that at the COC a lot of our our, our, our leadership is 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 tremendously strong and tremendously experienced um, when you think of our CEO, uh, David Shoemaker, uh, formerly the CEO of NBA in China. He started the uh, NBA in China. He was the uh, president of the um, uh, Women's Tennis Association. Uh, he's, he's had a, an incredibly impressive career and, uh, and is quite frankly, one of the truly smartest and strongest leaders I have had the pleasure of working under. Uh, when you think of uh, somebody like Trisha Smith, our president, who is, I mean, just thinking of her, her pedigree, a four-time Olympian, a silver medalist, a recipient of the Order of Canada, a lawyer, uh, the vice president of the International Rowing Federation. Um, uh, she is an IOC member. Uh, she's just like just just 
speaking to her is an intimidating <laughs> thing uh and 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 she she she's such a humble person and doesn't let you be intimidated by her even though she has this 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 like 10 page resume of titles and 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 accolades and and you have those people at your helm you you can really steer the boat in the right direction a lot of the time um other times i'll tell you it's difficult to come up with a statement and I'm, I'm going away from the Black Lives Matter uh, issue to other statements because what ends up happening is that you have information that you can't necessarily share for a whole bunch of reasons, either uh, for legal reasons or for privacy reasons. You can't share that information. And where you might sound like you're coming out with a weak statement, uh, the perception from the, at least from the perception of the, the public that's reading it, it's all you can say given those circumstances because you know things that are going to come out later on. And that's always very tough because you have to kind of defend those decisions, even though you know that people are, are mad at you because you haven't gone far enough or you haven't said enough or you haven't been. And, and you're like, oh, if, you, if you just wait another week <laughs> or if you wait another month, you, you, you'll understand why we're saying what we're saying. Uh, and then you have all the conspiracy theorists in, mm-hmm. in, in, that, in that whole spectrum of people so then you also have to contend with those and the fact that what you know so so it's it's not a tough place to be and a lot of the a lot of my job i feel is being a mediator between between where where i want to take something and between or and where our lawyers and and other people that are informing how how our decision is made are are pulling back and telling me no you can't go there uh and and what's nice is that most of the time we land where we need to land but the process is fun i'll be completely honest with you i'm invigorated by the process because it's intellectually stimulating and it's like looking at a problem through so many different angles it's so cool uh and uh and hopefully at the end of the day you know when you're judged by history you're looking at you're looking back and you're like well okay i didn't do a bad job there (laughs) um listen you've given me so much time i I truly truly appreciate getting the chance to talk with you and pick your brain um i always give a chance to give a plug i don't know if you had social media you want to plug or have any final inspirational (laughs) words um i'll give the i'll give Um, the, the mic to you though be kind to people. Uh, I think that's the only thing I can say that's inspirational at this very, very moment. Uh, and uh, plugs. Uh, you know what? I, I'm trying to disconnect from social media as much as I can. Uh, but you can follow me. <laughs> I'm, always, I'm always open to more followers. It's good to my ego and, and boosts, uh, it boosts me at my ego a little bit. Uh, so uh, I've, I've been an early adopter. I, the two main platforms I use is Instagram and, uh, and Twitter. Uh, and on uh, both of them, I am at Foti, P-H-O-T-I. So, uh, so I have an easy sort of uh, name for that. Uh, but you know what? Uh, you've, you've gained a, a fan as well. I've been listening to your podcasts. Uh, I'm tremendously impressed and uh, very interested in, in all of your guests. And so I'm, uh, I've, been, I've, been, I've been doing my homework and been listening to, uh, to a lot of them and uh, have been thoroughly entertained and informed by a lot of the work that you're doing. So uh, kudos to you and, and please to keep up doing what you're doing. It's uh, important and uh, in interesting work. Well, you can't see me blush because of my ginger beard, but that, that, that means so much to me. Thank you so much, uh, everyone. And then watch the Olympics when it comes out next year, obviously, because it's great. Bodhi Sadaropoulos, cheers, sir. Thank you. Thank you.
You shake the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.